So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, thank you very much, Richard. And uh, let me add my welcome and good morning to Joe's. It's great to uh, see you this morning. And um, it'd be great if you could have that passage open that Richard read. Uh, There's an outline as well. Hopefully you're given on the way in. And let's uh, ask God for his help now as we turn to his word. Let's pray briefly. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have of hearing you speak. And we pray that we would put up beside, behind us uh, all distractions and give ourselves to this little window in our week to give our attention to your word as a light shining in a dark place that we might come to know you and your Son, our Saviour, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. The uh, enemies of Jesus Christ have always faced a problem. Uh, Throughout the history of the church, when Christians are being faithful to God, when Christianity is working as it should, the enemies of Jesus are confronted with a dilemma they cannot solve, a a riddle, a mystery, a conundrum that they have no way of working out. Uh, Let me tell you about uh, Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate, for example. He was known to history as Julian the Apostate because he hated the way Christianity had infiltrated the Roman Empire under his uncle Constantine, and he wanted to bring Rome back to its pagan roots. But Julian had a problem, a conundrum, a a puzzle that actually kept him awake at night and led him to despair. Julian's problem 
was that Christians did good things. For example, he noticed that while pagans fled pandemics and plagues and just left people to die, Christians stayed to tend the sick, even tending the sick of their pagan neighbors who had persecuted them, even at risk to their own lives. In a time when women and children and slaves were treated as disposable possessions of men without rights or a voice of their own, Julian noticed that Christians taught the fundamental equality between all people as created by God. He noticed that they were faithful in marriage. They had stable homes. They had happy families, well-behaved children. They paid their taxes. They were kind to their neighbors. They worked hard. They were good employers. At a time when unwanted babies were disposed of on the rubbish tip or sold into slavery. Julian noticed it was Christians who rescued them and adopted them and brought them up as their own. It was Christians who fed the poor, gave shelter to the outcasts, visited prisons, gave slaves their freedom. And this was a problem for Julian because he could see that Christianity was spreading dangerously throughout the world. But he understood it was too late to suppress Christianity through direct persecution And so he adopted a clever strategy, a kind of beat them at their own strategy instead. He wrote to all his pagan priests throughout the empire and said, guys, you've got to start doing good things like the Christians. He instructed them to organize prison visits, to set up hostels, to run orphanages, to establish poverty relief programs paid for out of his own pocket. Julian was effectively the forerunner of the welfare state system. He ran Roman food banks, Roman health centers, a Roman version of the good old NHS. To his provisional leaders, he said this, we ought to practice every one of these virtues, either shame or persuade the priests into righteousness, that's the pagan priests, or remove them from their office. But Julian's pan failed completely. Not because he lacked resources, and not because Christianity kept spreading, but because he could not persuade his people to love the unlovely. The pagan religion contained no engine for that practice to be plausible. It had no roots from which that fruit could grow. And I think the same is true in our day. There are those in our society who look at history and insist that Christianity has been a bad thing for the world, that it's toxic, oppressive, patriarchal. I was sent this book uh, just yesterday by my father who uh, sent it me in exchange for a book that I want him to read, Naked God. He said, I've got to read this if if he reads that. Christopher Hitchings, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. I look forward to reading it and having a good conversation about it. Or you might think of Richard Dawkins, who calls Christianity one of the world's great evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. But then there are other non-Christian observers, more thoughtful historians, who offer a different perspective, like Rodney Stark in his book, the triumph of Christianity, how the Jesus movement became the world's largest religion, and Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, but the historian, in his 2019 book, Dominion, how the Christian revolution 
remade the world. And both of these men, neither of them believers, argue that almost everything good we take for granted about modern Western society originates from the Christian gospel. They point, for example, to our belief in the sanctity of life. Why do we watch Strictly Come Dancing instead of watching two men fight to the death in the Roman arena? The basic idea of human equality, a completely novel idea that all people are equal. Religious freedom, our legal system, democracy, charity, philanthropy, healthcare, personal responsibility, the freedom and equality of women, compassion for the weak and dying, the benefits of hard work, creation care, the dignity of the elderly, protecting the vulnerable, the abolition of the slave trade, even protecting the animals. Did you know the RSPB was set up by evangelical Christians in the Victorian times? And these men say, all of these things that we just take for granted, they have their roots in the Christian gospel. There is something, they say, that is at the heart of Christianity. There is some power, some engine, some driving force that other religions lack. And this puzzle, that Christians do good things, is not just a problem for the enemies of Jesus in the West, but stories have emerged in recent years of the tension that Chinese provincial officials have felt to persecute Christians and to close churches. Uh, listen to this. this uh, I heard this anecdotally from uh, someone from the Tyndale House in Cambridge. This is an unnamed visiting uh, Chinese official. He said this, I don't like to prosecute the Christians because they make such good citizens. They are not just concerned for themselves, but for others. Well, none of this should surprise readers of Peter's first letter in the New Testament. Just look back with me what he says in the passage before ours, the one that Joe's already referred to. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. But though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter's purpose in the letter is to help Christians to work out how they fit into this world. As people who belong to God, we don't belong to the world. As people on our way to heaven, we don't make our home in this world. That's why he calls Christians strangers, aliens, exiles, pilgrims passing through. And last week, as we looked at these two verses, 11 and 12 individually, we saw that this is part of God's deliberate plan to impact a world that has turned against him. It's no accident that we are different. We are to live morally beautiful, visibly distinct, corporately united, ordered lives in the context of a dark and hostile world so that the world will see what it means to belong to God. In other words, and I think this is the shocking thing, isn't it? Believe it or not, like it or not, God has chosen to attach his reputation to us. God has chosen to attach his reputation to us, which is why this stuff is so challenging, isn't it? Because it forces us to ask, how are we doing at that? Are we any different? Are our lives beautifully countercultural? Do we stand out 
in a culture of ugly conformity to sin and disorder? Are we the people who the world will consider worth persecuting? Or as someone put it last week in discussion on last week's passage, if you gave up being a Christian tomorrow, would your neighbours notice the difference? Would your work colleagues notice? It's challenging stuff, isn't it? Well, it's about to get even more challenging. Because having set up that basic principle in 11 to 12, Peter now comes to the nitty-gritty of what this life will mean on a Monday morning. And to show us how this works, he's going to take us by the hand and he's going to lead us gently but firmly through this passage all the way to the beating heart of the letter and to the heartbeat of the Christian gospel itself. This is where we're going to see that mysterious power that baffles people like Tom Holland and Rodney Stark. And in a word, as you'll see on the sheet, it's all about submission. Two points. Firstly, submit to human authority as those who serve God in 13 to 17. Submit to human authority as those who serve God. Verse 13 begins a theme that will occupy Peter for much of the remainder of the letter. Verse 18, slaves are to submit to their masters. Three, verse 1, wives are to submit to their husbands. He's still riffing on this theme loosely by 5 verse 5 where he says young men submit to those who are older. So it's a big strand in the letter. But he begins here in verse 13 with a very general submission. Have a look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. It's a blanket command, isn't it? We are to submit to all people who are in authority over us. Not only those we like and agree with and vote for, but those we don't. Not only the ones who do a good job at their role and are just and fair, but those who are not and who aren't. And this applies to everyone exercising human authority in every form, from the emperor or king or prime minister, to your boss at work, to the teachers at school, to HMRC and DVLA, to the captain of the school team, to the lollipop lady who crosses the road and stops the traffic, anybody and everybody in authority over us, we are to submit. And Peter gives us three reasons we are to do this. Firstly, because it helps us to submit to God. It helps us to submit to God. The authority has been put there by God. Look at how he continues in 13 and 14, whether to the king as the supreme authority or governors who are sent by God to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Paul is even more emphatic in Romans 13, where he says there is no authority except that which God has established. Now, that doesn't mean that all human laws are right and good. As a culture moves away from God and his word, the state and the law will increasingly work against what is right and good to promote what is evil. You can see that in all parts of the world, as Simon reminds us in the prayers. But Christians will be people who generally want to keep the law of the land as far as we can. That will be our, our basic default posture. 
because God is a God of order and there can be no order without leadership and submission. Do you remember back at the beginning, if you know the story of how the Bible begins and how the world falls apart in Genesis chapter 3, the freedom and blessing of life in the paradise of the Garden of Eden did not consist of Adam and Eve doing whatever they wanted to do. But that freedom and blessing involves submitting to God's authority. It included the husband's leadership of his wife and her submission, which we'll come to next week. It included children's submission to parents and man and woman ruling the creation under God. It was an ordered life of rule and submission. And the disorder that we now experience in our world with all its tragic and painful consequences actually began with a moment of rebellion. A moment when the man and woman rebelled against God's order. When the woman submitted to the snake and his words instead of to the word of God. In other words, rebellion against authority is the essence of sin. And so submission to authority is one of the ways God has given us to constrain evil and encourage good living. To do what Peter says we must do in 11 and 12, to abstain from sin and to do good which means that while we may find them frustrating and inconvenient, many of the laws of the land, even a secular land like ours, are are there to help us fight sin as well as the sin of others. See, how do you feel about filling in your tax return? Dreadfully inconvenient, isn't it? Huge sums of money just being washed away that you've worked hard to earn. But of course... Paying taxes helps us to fight greed and share our resources. How do you feel about the traffic laws? I mean, when I see an amber light, you know, my foot just goes down onto the accelerator. But I have to remember that the light is there for me to use the other pedal. And so as I see the amber light, it's a little reminder to me that I'm not the center of the world. You know, my schedule isn't more important than killing the cyclist who's in front of me, and so on. Copyright laws. So inconvenient, but they're, they're there to stop us being lazy. Licensing laws are there to stop drunkenness, and so on. And so the law of the land can actually help us fight sin and do good to learn obedience to God. And this, of course, is why it's so vital that children learn from the earliest possible age to obey their parents. You might think, you know, that it's so that parents can have an easier life. But it's so that the children can learn to submit to authority in general. So their hearts can be trained in obedience to God. And so when parents train their children in basic obedience, they are training them in the most fundamental step of Christian discipleship. The most fundamental step. Because what else is Christian discipleship but obedience to God? And as we train our children to obey us as parents, we are, we are training them for a lifetime of obedience. We're equipping their little hearts to fight sin and do good. So there's the first thing. Submission to authority helps us submit to God. Secondly, submission to authority points others to God. Last week we saw from verse 12 that the morally beautiful, visibly distinct, corporately ordered lifestyle we present to the watching world is a powerful part of the mission God has given us 
as his people on earth. And now he applies that to this business of submission to authorities. Look at verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Of course, as with verse 12, the obvious question is, when does this foolish talk get silenced? Is it now, in this life, as we do, or is it in the judgment at the end, when Jesus returns? Well, we spent a little bit of time on this last week, and I think, as with verse 12, the answer's got to be both. There's an ongoing ministry of silencing and witness to the world, so that millions of people in the first four centuries, up to the time of Julian, had turned to Christ because they'd seen the good works. It is working. Others, like Dawkins and Hitchings, will, the new atheists, will, will fight even harder against the gospel. And then there'll be those like Tom Holland and Rodney Stark, who will watch on, maybe a little bit bemused, fascinated. But we have just got to do the right thing and leave the results to God. Last week, we received a one-star review on Google. I don't know if you know that our church has reviews on Google. It's like a, a book or a product or something like that. You can look at our reviews and most of them encourage you. A one-star review is not a good thing. It said this, Fanatical Christians preaches hate, had a pleasure of having them as neighbours, teaches their kids as well cancerous. Well, how does that make you feel if you're a member of this church? Well, of course, you might want to pull apart the grammar, but I guess most of us will just feel a little bit hurt by that. I mean, you're going to write a one-star review. You could spend a little bit longer you know, making it eloquent. But anyway, we'll leave that to one side. We're going to feel a little bit hurt, aren't we? We'll be inclined to put up a bit of a protest. But I think this passage, verse 15, is, is teaching us that we don't need to do that. What do we do when we are criticised unjustly? Well, we just crack on. And we make sure there is no reason that accusation can ever stick. The bit about being hate-filled, not about the bit of teaching their kids, that's okay. Make sure when people read that and they know us personally, they're finding a mismatch between the two. Well, that's what Google says, a one-star review, but that's not my experience of the people who belong to Moreland's church. That person who lives next door to me, I, I don't think they're a hate-filled fanatic. So when that piece of gossip is going around the workplace, you're not going to be part of it. And so your colleague is going to say, no, I don't, I don't think that's true. That person belongs to that church. They're actually one of the most conscientious, kind people I know. Oh, no, I don't think that can be right, says the recently divorced single mother. When I was struggling, some members of that church actually knocked on my door and gave me some meals. Oh, I don't think that's right, says the homesick student. When I was feeling a bit depressed a few weeks ago and a bit fed up, my flatmates came around and helped me with my essay, and they helped me, cheered me up and helped me, took me out, that kind of thing. They're members of that church. In other words, how do you respond to that kind of criticism? You make sure that there's no reason the accusation can stick. That it just kind of falls off like a piece of scrambled egg on a non-stick pan. And this is what those thoughtful historians have picked up over time, over the long years of church history. Well, Richard Dawkins can say what he likes, but the truth is out, and the truth will out in the end. 
So too, good reasons to submit to authorities. But of course, all this ought to be raising the question, or does raise the question, which is what happens when the authorities demand that Christians do what God forbids or forbid what God demands? After all, you may know that this letter is written somewhere around AD uh, 60, uh, 62, 63, that sort of time. And so the emperor on the throne is not the anti-Christian but slightly ineffective Julian, but it's the anti-Christian and very effective Emperor Nero, who was just kind of getting going at this time that Peter was writing the letters. He wasn't quite, as far as we can tell, burning Christians at this point. But he was raising a lot of hostility to Christians he was putting those systems in place that would persecute Christians. And in just a couple of years from Peter's letter, he would prove himself to be history's most sadistic persecutor of Christians. And that brings us to our third reason for submission. Submission is how we show allegiance to God. Look again at verse 13 to 17 and just notice how many times Peter brings God into the picture. Verse 13, we submit for the Lord's sake. Verse 14, we submit to authorities who are sent by him. Verse 15, this is God's will. Verse 16, live as free men, as servants of God. And then 17, four quick imperatives in succession, show proper respect, literally honor everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, honor the king. But notice, it is only God who you are to fear. In other words... No matter who is on the throne, our submission to them is part of our greater submission to God. And therefore, submission to human authorities does not always equate to obedience to human authorities. And sometimes our obedience to human authorities is going to be trumped by our obedience to God. If the king demands what God forbids or forbid what God demands, we are free to obey in order to obey God, or free to disobey in order to obey God. And there are plenty of examples in the Bible where this has been the case. I think of the Hebrew midwives who Pharaoh told to throw the baby boys into the Nile, didn't he? But the Hebrew midwives rescued the baby boys, and we read in Exodus 1.17, they did not obey Pharaoh because they feared God. Or Moses' mother doing the same thing, hiding Moses in a basket. Or think of Elijah standing up to King Ahab in 1 Kings 18. Or Mordecai in the book of Esther, refusing to bow down to Haman, even breaking the king's command. Esther herself, disobeying the command not to speak to the king to save the Jews. I will go to the king, though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. Esther 4.16. Or remember the reason Daniel was thrown into the lion's den was because he refused not to do something against God's law, but to stop doing something, to stop praying when the king had forbidden prayers. And then Peter himself in Acts 4, when he and John are commanded to stop speaking about Jesus, listen to this, Acts 4 verse 19, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Happens throughout the church history, happens in the Bible. It is happening now in many parts of the world, which is why we need to keep praying for persecuted Christians as we did. And of course, it's going to begin to happen in any culture that is moving away from the Bible. And so we should expect 
to have to think carefully about this. It might be, for example, to do with those proposed laws about conversion therapy, which will make some aspects of normal Christian discipleship illegal. It might be the sort of legislation that's being proposed in some parts of the Western world that could make preaching the Bible, what I'm doing now, a hate crime. It's been proposed in Victoria and Australia. It might be medical professions being forced to perform procedures that go against their consciences, or teachers being forced out of school for promoting this transgender ideology in the language they used. Whatever the issue, if the direction of our society continues, I would be amazed if there were some in this room who did not spend time in prison for preaching the gospel, or perhaps some of our children in grub groups now, I'd be amazed if some of them didn't spend time in prison at some point for preaching the gospel, for sticking to biblical principle. And as they do, that is how they submit to authorities. And here's Peter's point. This may look to the world like anything but freedom. But this is in fact true freedom because this is how we serve God. We dare to be crushed because we are secure in Christ. We dare to be nobodies in the world because we are somebodies in the kingdom. We dare to lose our freedom in this world because we are free in Christ. Why do we feel this way? Why are we so confident? Because that is what Jesus did. And that brings us to our second main point. Submit to unjust suffering as those who know Christ. Now verses 13 to 17 applies to all Christians in every situation. But now Peter moves in verse 18 to a particular subgroup among his readers and they are obviously the most <clears throat> marginalized and powerless and vulnerable of all people in society at that time. Read verse 18 with me. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. In a way that parallels the general submission to authority that we've just seen, Peter now says that Christian slaves are to submit to their masters even if the masters are wicked people, even if they subject the slave to unjust suffering. That is hard to hear, isn't it? So why? Well, three reasons again. Firstly, just as in the first section, it is how we serve God. The first reason follows the principles we saw in the first passage. It is one of the ways that Christian slaves get to serve God. Now, a word of clarification at this point might be helpful. That is how we are to think of slaves in the Bible and slaves in our world. There's an important principle we must bring to read in the Bible that we must allow the Bible to speak from its own context and not bring our lenses and modern preconceptions into the Bible. This is written, isn't it, out of a particular historical context. First century slavery is not 21st century slavery. And we need to be careful not to engage in the, the sort of historic imperialism in which we judge the past based on modern values. And I think this is particularly important when we hit the topic of slavery. 
For a start, nowhere does the Bible approve of slavery or commend slavery as a social structure. So next week, we're going to see submission in marriage, and and that is different. That is a, a creation structure that still continues, but slavery is not like that. In fact, God is the rescuer of slavery in the Bible, isn't he? And at the same time, we must be careful not to read back into this passage ideas and experience of slavery that we have become familiar, particularly through recent events and education and so on. And because of our knowledge of the barbaric transatlantic slavery in the 18th and 19th century, against which Christians took a stand, we must not assume that first century slavery is exactly like that. In fact, there were some significant differences First century slavery in the Roman Empire was not in any way a a racial thing. It was an economic thing. It was often more like a bonded employment arrangement where slaves could serve as doctors, as teachers, as musicians, managers, craftsmen could even own their own slaves. It was a deeply embedded social institution and the early church was not in a position to resist it or overthrow it. That said, it could be horrible Masters could be cruel and exploitative, just as modern-day employers can be. And wherever Christians could gain their freedom, that was the right thing to do. But Peter now helps address Christian slaves in that situation as those who suffer unjustly. In fact, the word translated for slaves in verse 18 is not the usual word, doulos, for slaves, It's a different word. It is household servant in verse 18, literally what we might call domestics. Think about downstairs in Downton Abbey, domestic servants. Now, why does he use that particular word? Well, look at verse 16 and notice that he's called Christians servants of God. And interestingly, that word is the doulos word. And so unfortunately, our NIV translation gets things a little bit the wrong way around. Verse 16, we are slaves of God. And then verse 18, some of us as slaves find ourselves in this particular form of slavery in the workplace. Which is why I think it's legitimate to apply this passage to the workplace today. Whether you're a first century household slave toiling in a field or teaching children in a classroom, or you're a school leaver flipping burgers at McDonald's for minimum wage, or you're the apprentice on the building site, or the student in the lab, or the office worker, or shopkeeper, or engineer, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, if we work for other people, we have a boss, then I think this applies to you. And Peter says, if you work for somebody, what we've got to remember is that we are a slave of God first. We are working for him. Which means, of course, all those attitudes that Andy and Emma talked about earlier. Those attitudes of working hard when nobody notices. Working with particular integrity, even when others are not. Not complaining and undermining the boss, even when others are. Not joining in the group WhatsApp gossip, even if deep down you feel maybe they've got a point living in that distinctive, God-conscious way. And such basic attitudes, but sometimes socially revolutionary. So this is how we get to serve God. But secondly, this is how God serves us. 
Second point, it points the sufferer to God. Have a look at verse 19. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. The word for at the beginning of verse 19 tells us Peter is coming to the heart of why slaves must submit even when their masters cause them unjust suffering. And it all hangs on how we take that word commendable, which appears at the beginning and end of that little section. Notice it again. Verse 19, it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious to, to, uh, to God. Verse 20, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now that word commendable is actually the word grace. The Greek word charis, which we sang about in our second song, is grace that God gives to us. And so I want to suggest that to take this at face value, Peter is actually saying in verse 19, not that this way of bearing on just suffering earns us a reward from God. But it is a gift from God. Just have a look at it and let that sink in because it's a little bit surprising. It's a little bit counterintuitive. This unjust suffering, this pain, is a grace of God. It's a gift of God. How do you feel about that? To receive a thrashing from a harsh master for something you didn't do, that is a gift from God. Well, if that's God's gift, then perhaps I'd rather not have it. Thank you very much. Well, how is that a gift from God? It is because these suffering servants are going to learn about the suffering servant. As they submit and endure unjust suffering for God, they will grow in their knowledge of God. They'll grow in their experience and value of the grace of God. And that's his gift to us. That brings us to our final sub-point. That suffering unjustly is how we grasp the cross of Christ. Have a look at verse 21. He says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When Peter says, to this you were called, he is not saying to this situation of slavery you were called. The Bible rarely uses the calling language in that vocational sense. He is saying, to this experience of unjust suffering you were called. In other words, he is now talking from verse 21, not just to slaves in particular, but to Christians in general. He is saying this is the call of the Christian life. Unjust suffering in an unjust world is what all Christians are called to. And of course, that shouldn't surprise us. Because what else could it mean when Jesus said to Peter in Mark chapter 8, take up your cross and follow me, but to suffer unjustly. It is part of the deal that we've signed up to. It is how we need to grow in Christ. It is how we follow Christ, to pick up our cross and follow him. And so what Peter is doing here is he's expanding in his own words 
that call that he heard in Mark chapter 8, take up your cross and follow me. Now, we do have to tread carefully here because Christ's suffering on the cross is utterly unique. Those words for you in verse 21 remind us that Jesus' death is more than just an example. And before we follow the example of Jesus' suffering, Peter wants us to understand why that suffering was so crucial and what it achieved for us. And he does that by drawing a portrait of Christ that is a kind of a blend of his own memory of seeing Jesus dying on the cross, interpreted through the lenses of a particular part of the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, and around that area where Isaiah gives us this picture of the suffering servant. And so that's what we're seeing in these few remaining verses. There's the picture of the suffering servant from Isaiah superimposed with Peter's own recollection in which he saw that prophecy fulfilled with his own eyes. So verse 22, this is Isaiah's description of the suffering servant. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. The suffering servant of God in Isaiah will die a death of injustice, a death he did not deserve to die. He lived the perfect life and now he suffers in silence despite it unjust suffering. And then Peter's own memory of Jesus shows the fulfillment of Isaiah. Verse 23, Peter remembers when they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Peter remembers it like it was yesterday. And now he understands it. Now he can understand what was going on through the interpretive lens of Isaiah 53. That Jesus was submitting to human authorities. Submitting to them to the very death. Maintaining his innocence even without speaking. He was living the beautiful life in the midst of a dark world. He was putting into practice in the most consistent and radical and thorough way what Peter has said in 11 and 12 we are to do. To abstain from sin. To live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will glorify God on the day he visits us. Jesus did that on the cross. And Peter saw it. And then back to the servant song in Isaiah, the death is not for show. It has a desperately vital purpose. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In other words, Jesus' death is never just an example. If, if you have a theological system that says it's just an example, it's, it's completely wrong. First and foremost, it is an atonement. It's a sacrifice that achieves something. And what it achieves is expressed brilliantly in, in verse 24. That word tree takes us back to Deuteronomy where to die on a tree is to die under the curse of God. And because Jesus did that for us. Verse 25 is true. Verse 25, we get to come home. You were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus' death has brought restoration. It's brought forgiveness. It's brought healing from the sickness of sin. It's brought rescue from the slaves of sin. It's brought the wandering sheep back to the shepherd. See, I've talked about enemies of Jesus. 
But that's what we all were. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus this morning, then your route back to God is here as it was for each one of us. To trust in this death on the cross and to come home to the good shepherd who died for your sins. And if you've done that, it is from that position of utter security and freedom that we now get to live out from the cross as we follow him. And so back to verse 21. Now we've seen what the cross achieves. We can see what it means to be an example. The word example in verse 21 actually catches the idea brilliantly. Apparently, in the first century world, in the absence of, well, they they had tablets, but they weren't tablets as we know them. You'd get your child to write on the tablet, but the tutor would trace on it first. And so here is the ABC, here are the dates of the Roman, here are the things you need to learn. And you write it out on your little tablet or your little chalkboard or whatever it is. And the tutor takes his hands off. And the child then comes and retraces what the tutor has written. And so that word example in verse 21 catches this idea perfectly. Jesus has left us a template of how to live and how to die. And therefore, as we follow him down that path, we are learning Christ. Now for all time, a groove has been set in the ground which maps out true freedom for the disciple. True freedom is not to do your own thing. True freedom is not to win in this world, but to live in that groove that Christ has traced before us to live the life of unjust suffering, to take up our cross and follow him. And by that means, we ourselves learn Christ. We become gripped by the gospel of the cross. Well, there's much more we could say about this passage. It is the heart of the letter, but I want to just conclude with a challenge and an encouragement. First of all, the challenge... What does it really mean in practice to live this way, to live in that groove? See, it might be that we we listen to this thing and actually, well, this is all very useful because one day that persecution may come and I may need this. So we can kind of put it to one side and think this is a bit of a survival kit and I'm going to go home and teach my children. Danny said, you're going to be in prison by the time you're 30. This is how you're going to do it. That would be an interesting conversation to have around the lunch table, won't it? What kind of prison do you want to be in? (laughs) We shouldn't joke about these things. But we might put the application of this sermon in that category. It's the survival kit category. This is what I'm going to need when this bad stuff happens. But what does it mean tomorrow morning? What does it mean on our way home from church? What does it mean as we're putting the children to bed, as we gather to pray this afternoon, as we get down to that nitty-gritty, boring work, I'm sorry, Andy, of drawing pumps and all the rest of it? What does it mean? Well, I want to suggest that this is actually teaching us not a survival kit, but a posture for life. A posture. See, just think about the, the posture that Jesus adopted on the cross. 
And I want to suggest it's a, a complete reversal of the normal human way of life. And it's the way that we're called to. We touched on this last week. We said that what is normal is my good at your expense. And if you think about it, this is how the world fell apart back in Genesis 3. The snake came along and said to Eve, God doesn't have your best interests at heart. This is a paraphrase of Genesis 3. You need to grasp the forbidden fruit for your own sake, for your own happiness, for your own freedom, for your own fulfillment. God wants to hold you in miserable slavery, and you must not allow that. You put yourself first. You rebel against God. You're good at his expense. That's how the world fell apart. And that's how the world works. That is what we imbibe in our mother's milk. That is how our culture works. That is how the workplace works. And Adam demonstrated that immediately in the garden, didn't he? When he blamed his wife for the decision to grasp the fruit, he blamed God for giving him his wife. It's this woman you put in the garden. It's her fault. It's your fault. I'm going to throw her under the bus and exonerate myself rather than take responsibility. It's my good at your expense is the way the world works. And the moment Jesus handed himself over to die on the cross was the single moment when history flipped over and every philosophy and every religion that's ever been invented was turned upside down and subverted at that moment. Because as the innocent son of God subjected himself to unjust suffering, he said, here is another way. Here is a completely alternative way. Here is a revolution in thinking. I'm going to live for your good at my expense. Which is why this comes in the center of the letter, because it's the engine that's going to drive everything he'll say from marriage next week to leadership in chapter 5. And this is what those scholars, Tom Holland and Rodney Stark have now understood, if you read to the end of those books, they actually talk about the, the cataclysm, the revolution that happened in the first century. It's the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And what this means, of course, is the real culture war is not out there on X, formerly known as Twitter, but it's in our hearts. That's where the real culture war is being waged, isn't it? It's in the hearts of ordinary Christians who are battling, verse 11, those sinful desires to say, my good at your expense, or your good at my expense. Am I going to live like a pagan, or am I going to live like a Christian? Am I going to just take the benefits of Christ's death but carry on living in this groove that everybody else lives? Or am I going to take the benefits of Christ's death and then live out my life and trace that pattern with my own blood? That is the choice we face. That is the choice we face every day, every moment of every day. Whatever your situation in life, whether you're a slave, whether you're a mother, teacher, engineer, candlestick maker, serving in teams in church, 
This is the posture of the Christian. Well, that's the challenge. What about the encouragement? Well, the encouragement is, it's because Christians do this and because Christians have done this that the enemies of Jesus can never win. When Christians are suppressed and persecuted, as they are all over the world, that doesn't mean Jesus is losing. It actually means in an extraordinary way he is winning. Because just as Jesus triumphed at the cross, so he now triumphs in the submission of his people. We can sometimes feel frustrated, can't we, that we we have lost the place at the cultural table. You know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 100 years ago, we, we had a place at the table. But it doesn't mean we cannot make our presence felt. And so it means that the influencers in this culture war are not the visibly beautified celebs on Instagram. You know the Instagram pose? I mean, I don't do Instagram. I, I gave up Instagram, but I, I see them, you know, on the bridges and that kind of thing. There's this pose that they do, you know. I'm glad Tom put his camera away at that point. <laughs> now, the, the pose is actually the cross, isn't it? It's submission. The celebs on Instagram are beautified and this word influencers has become a thing. You can actually make your career now, can't you? You can make money out of it. But they're influencing nobody and nothing. The influencers in this world are those who live by the cross. Those who go to work on a Monday morning, those who raise their children to obey God. Those who just carry on life in quietness and the untrumpeted good works as servants of God. This is how we change the world. This is how Jesus wins. So let's have a moment to reflect on what that means for us in the week ahead. And then Joe's going to lead us in a prayer. Let's pray together. And I'm going to pray using some of the words we're going to sing in our last song. So let's pray. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home, and day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us from your words this morning what it will mean to walk day by day for the Lord Jesus, following in his pattern of suffering as we submit to you and fear you. Uh, Father, we ask for your help as we do that, and we pray that the words that we're about to sing would uh, cause us to love Jesus so that we might live for him. In his name, amen.